welcome to another edition of The Inebriated Past with Matt Crispin. Today, I am going to be talking about something that is a little outside of my purview. The previous editions of The Inebriated Past have very specifically and intentionally uh, focused on American history. This is the first uh, Inebriated Past to get outside of the confines of American history and outside of the confines of narrow historical analysis and narrative, actually. And that is to answer the kind of broad question that has dogged a lot of people in the last few years, especially since Trump took office, which is, what is fascism? What the fuck do people mean when they say fascism? This is a question that has bedeviled people and and has led to a number of incredibly facile and uh, disingenuous motherfuckers on the right attempting to make arguments about fascism being some sort of leftist force, fascism being some sort of subsidiary uh, form of socialism. I mean, Jonah Goldberg, Denise D'Souza, everyone who gets mad at Antifa, they're all singing from the same hymnal, which is that fascism is essentially the same as socialism because I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a little thing called the horseshoe theory, which says that at the extremes, all uh, political movements are identical. It's only in the meaty center of the horseshoe that there's real nuance. This is, of course, horseshit. But it is often easy to forget exactly why it's horseshit. And so what I hope to do with this episode is to drill down into the historical reality of fascism and talk about what it means to be fascist. And more importantly, even than debunking the bad faith arguments of a bunch of complete fraudulent assholes on the right – to discuss what fascism means in the 21st century and the degree to which the current moment in America and in Europe is defined as fascist and what that means. Basically, what fascism means after World War II. Because that's really where the question becomes meaningful. Everyone on Earth understood what fascism was before the end of World War II. Before the end of World War II, everyone understood that fascism was a a mutation, a, a, a hyper-aggressive variant of, of reaction that attempted to suppress the left through internal and external violence. Everyone understood that. It was not really a question. No one would argue the opposite. It was only after the end of the war, it was only after the Nazis and, and the Italian fascists had been defeated and the imperial Japanese had been defeated – that people could say, well, okay, what does fascism mean now? And have that question have a variety of answers. Because that's the most interesting thing to me about the question of fascism in the 21st century is that as much as we historically literate people might scoff at the Jonah Goldberg, Denise D'Souza argument that liberalism is fascism, there is a left case to be made that they're actually right for the wrong reasons, of course, but they are essentially correct in pointing to sort of the Keynesian 
warfare state of NATO and post-war America as a variety of fascism. And we'll get to that. But anyway, the way to start to this is to go back to the beginning, to get back to where fascism began. It began with genocide and with concentration camps, but not in Poland and in Eastern Europe, as we've generally had been taught to us. It began in Namibia in 1904 through 1908, which was the period when a rebellion by native Africans against the German colonial powers of what at the time was known as a German Southwest Africa, and which is now considered called Namibia, led to a campaign of racial extermination that in its particulars is eerily similar to what those same Germans did 30 years later. The basic narrative here is that in the 1880s, Germany, one of the last European piglets to huddle next to the south teat of the scramble for Africa, grabbed this chunk of southwest Africa, which, uh, which is, as I said, now Namibia, north of, of current-day South Africa, an area that was one and a half times the size of Germany, but compared to the holdings of, say, even Portugal or France or England, was relatively paltry because Germany was sort of the last colonial, last European power to sort of grab a colonial chunk of Africa. In the 1880s, Germany grabbed this one chunk of southwestern Africa as their part of the general colonial dissection of that continent. And they carried out the classic colonial playbook. That area of Africa was largely dominated by pastoralists, by herdsmen, by people who, who were members of several different tribes. The most notably were the Herero and the Nama tribes, whose subsistence was predicated on herding uh, mostly cattle. And when the Germans showed up, they did what colonialists did, which is they grabbed the land and they grabbed the cattle. And they extorted control of the locals through debt peonage and just confiscation of livestock. And that went on for about 20 years until 1904 when there was a general rebellion against German colonial rule, which was responded to by Germany at this point, what is known as the Second Reich, not the Third Reich of Hitler, but the Second Reich, the the short-lived German Empire of of the Kaisers that followed the Franco-Prussian War and lasted until the end of World War I. They responded with a campaign of genocide, flatly stated. They drove the rebellious Herreros into the desert where many of them, most of them died of thirst and starvation intentionally as a project of the German state. We have the quotes from the architects of this uh, campaign who called it a racial war who intentionally drove the rebellious Africans into the desert with the 
idea that they would starve and that they would be dehydrated to death. Uh, Where there were watering holes, the Germans poisoned them. And the people who survived these deprivations were gathered into concentration camps. These were not the first concentration camps of the modern era. Those, of course, were in Cuba, administered by Spain, and in South Africa, administered by the British during the Boer War. But shortly after that, so basically this is the third instance of of concentration camps during the colonial, late colonial era in Europe, of European conquest. And not only were the people who were rounded into these concentration camps allowed to die of exposure, of disease, of lack of food and water, they were experimented upon medically in a way that would be incredibly familiar to anyone who has studied the Nazi concentration camps. German doctors in South German Southwest Africa conducted experiments on the captive populations of Herreros and Nama who were captured and held in concentration camps in Namibia, modern Namibia, in 1906, 1907, 1908. This is before fascism came to Europe. The reason I say this is because I think the best way to understand fascism is as the application of colonial coercive mechanisms of control and of domination to the metropole. I think that is what fascism most, I guess I'd say, fruitfully can be described because there's a lot of different descriptions explanations. And I think the best way to think of it is when a colonial power responds to pressure and conflict from within, either class-based or due to economic instability or the, the mingling of those two, it brings the forces that it had used to subdue its colonial outposts to the center. I think that is what fascism most meaningfully is defined as. There are other elements of it. We can talk about Umberto Eco. We can talk about Stanley Payne. We can talk about Robert Paxton. I think Paxton is actually very, very helpful on this point. But I think to cut through all of the bullshit, to cut through all of the myriad obfuscations and and acts of – rhetorical ledger main that go into the rhetoric around fascism. I think the way to think of it as colonial power, colonial systems of control being turned inward. So the first sort of example of this is what colonial Germany did in Africa in the 18, 1910s in, in what is now Namibia. This is a time when no one would have referred to the German Reich as uh, as fascist. This is, a, in fact, a period when um, when no less a figure than W. E. D. Du Bois saw the German Reich as a model for enlightened administration. Uh, this is the this is basically just an expanded version of the of the Prussian bureaucratic state 
that Heigl saw as the end result of the historical dialect. So this is the epitome of European civilization. And it was carrying out in Africa what is absolutely recognizable in the modern mind as genocide, as the sort of depraved, lunatic violence of fascism. Fascism, first and foremost, was a response to World War I. World War I was a continent-wide bloodletting on a scale that was frankly unimaginable to anyone who had come before. The closest thing that you could compare it to is maybe the 30 years war of the 1620s through the 40s. And that even had the patina of sort of religiosity around it. There was nothing sacred about the First World War. There was no way that anyone involved in it could convince themselves that they were embarking in a holy crusade on anyone's behalf. It was brutal and horrible realpolitik that resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of young European men. A bloodletting that had basically never been conceived of before. A situation where you saw bright-eyed aristocratic hussars astride chariots of glory being mowed down mercilessly by Maxim guns. A situation where all of the prestige and honor of warfare that had persisted in Europe all the way through the Napoleonic era and everything was just chopped into nothing by mustard gas and by trench warfare and, and artillery shells. And the trauma of that war is something that is hard to really conceive of because we all live in its aftermath. We all live in a world created honestly by the, in, the basic trauma of World War I. These people who were alive at the time were introduced into the modern world, basically, in the most violently horrible way possible. And what it led to was a continent of Europe that was basically traumatized from stem to stern and that led to people seeking extreme answers to the questions created by this war. So let's go through the two countries that became fascist, quote-unquote, uh, after World War I. Other countries can be brought into what we consider the Axis powers during World War II, uh, Japan, of course, but also Romania and Hungary and Spain and Portugal. These are all, to one degree or another, can be put into the fascist orbit. But really, only two countries after World War I were, were seized by political movements that we can point to and say, this is fascism. This isn't just reaction. This is not just the old guard trying to reassert power through a veneer of popular support. This is a new political formation that we can identify as fascist. Those countries were Italy and Germany. Italy and Germany were ostensibly on opposite sides of the Versailles peace of 1919. Germany, of course, was the pariah state that had been defeated by, by the Allies in World War I and were considered by the Versailles Treaty to be the cause of the war, who were required to um, give massive indemnities 
were required to demilitarize, were required to give over huge percentages of their uh, their industrial economy to the Allies. Italy had started the war on the Axis side, but had switched. They did a classic face turn in the middle of the war and ended up fighting with the Allies. Poorly, I must say. They got their asses kicked. They're basically the only people. The Italians were the only army in World War II, or World War I, rather, I'm sorry, that the uh, that the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians actually beat. Like, they kicked their ass. What they shared was a sense of being injured by the peace, by Versailles. Obviously, we know how Germany was uh, insulted. The indemnities, the loss of the, the demobilization of the, the Ruhr, the, the, the lack of uh, ability to have an army, the, the requirement of uh, admitting war guilt. It was a stem to stern humiliation. Italy's humiliation was less overt, but still deeply felt because Italy went into the war on the side of the Allies with the idea that by joining the winning side, they would gain the spoils of victory. But the Versailles Treaty didn't really give Italy much in the way of reward for having participated on the side of the Allies. And that feeling was deeply stinging to the people who had pushed Italy into joining the war, who had said, Italy, fight the war, it'll be worth it. One of the people who made that argument during the war was a former socialist named Benito Mussolini, who split with the Italian socialists on the question of the war, who said, I believe that it is Italy's destiny to fight this war, win it, and to gain spoils from it. And and by doing that, Mussolini essentially divorced himself from the mass of the Italian socialist movement. And he emerged after World War II basically as a man without a country. But the country he was in, was one that felt deeply insulted by their lack of territorial gains. And like many of the countries of Europe and the rest of the world after World War I, economically dislocated by the war. Uh, Italy was a classic case of a country that had a uneven development. The south of Italy was largely agrarian and almost even quasi-feudal. North of Italy was a burgeoning industrial hub which meant that you had a situation where Italy was in a large, the southern Italy was dominated by the remnants of feudal uh, orders, and northern Italy was rapidly industrializing, and with that industrialization came the realities of a modern society and class conflict, uh, strikes, labor organizing, militancy. And into this ferment came Mussolini, the former socialist who made a deal, essentially, with the landed gentry of the South and the industrial magnates of the North, which was, allow me to deal with this. And the early power of the Italian fascist movement came in their ability to break strikes, both in the North among industrial laborers and in the South among agricultural laborers, because agricultural militancy was a feature of post-World War I Italy. The fascists made their efficacy shown to the powers that be by organizing 
street power in opposition to the left. And this is where we get to the real definition of fascism. And that is the – this is what Robert Paxton in his book, The Anatomy of Fascism, which I highly recommend to anyone listening to this, says. It is the suppression of the left amidst popular enthusiasm because this was the central con- tr- problem for the ruling powers of European countries after World War I. It was that the ineffable and unstoppable force – of popular mobilization, popular political organization meant that the old days of limited suffrage, of voting being only amongst the elect, only amongst the landowning was no longer tenable. Everyone was going to get the ballot. And if everyone got the ballot, then Marx's calculation was going to be correct because Marx saw in the Expansion of the franchise, essentially the doom of capitalism. He saw if the working class got a say in government, their numbers would eventually overwhelm the numbers of bourgeois and the numbers of landowners and take over control of governments across the whole world, wherever this reality of of a universal franchise pertained. This was a problem for the landowners. For the capitalists, obviously. And men like Mussolini and later Hitler came along and solved that problem for them. And this is another essential reality of fascism that must be remembered by anybody who wants to understand it, is that it was a postmodern movement. It was a movement of people who wanted power above all. Before fascism, politics and political parties were understood to represent specific class interests. Even people who hated Marx, even people who despised the concept of socialism, understood politics and political parties as a battle of interests. In the emergent democracies of Europe, there were farmer parties, labor parties, bourgeois parties, and they contested on the electoral battleground. And the ruling class despaired of their lack of numbers. Because to them, the only way to understand politics was to understand it in these terms, in the terms of numbers, in the terms of interests. Fascism in Italy and in Germany was the product of people like Mussolini and Hitler, who understood that they could marry the rabble-rousing popular energy of the left with the economic and social support of the ruling class to create essentially an unbeatable combination. And this first saw its first fruits in 1922 in Italy when Mussolini led the March on Rome, when his black shirts, which is what he called his street fighters who had made their bones after World War I, beating up strikers and, and uh, lazy farm workers all throughout uh, Italy and gaining the support and economic backing of landowners and industrialists, marched them. Mussolini marched his black shirts into the heart of Rome. And the king, Victor Emmanuel, responded by offering Mussolini 
the prime ministership. Now, there was nothing making him do this. They could have suppressed the march on Rome easily with the army if the ruling classes of Italy thought there was any other force that could be effective in suppressing the popular ferment created by the end of World War I, the demands of the peasants, the demands of the industrial workers. But there wasn't. There were only these black-shirted thugs literally marching into Rome and saying, we are here to do your bidding. And so, instead of firing upon them and dispersing them and arresting them, the king and his supporters and the Catholic Church and the industrialists and the landowners gave him the portfolio of governance. And this created the first fascist government in history, something that Mussolini called corporatism, the the bringing together of workers and ownership and landowners and peasants into one corporate body. Fascism essentially conceives of society as a body. It says that every class is an organ or a part of a whole body and that the body cannot survive without all of them together, but that they cannot, they cannot also be overcome. Like the, the, the Marxist concept of a class, a society, a society where the exploiters are overthrown and all that's left are workers democratically managing control of the economy, that's not possible. What's possible instead is a harmonious social corporate order where everyone is part of a body that functions together. So that was the idea of fascism. And that is why it was critical of capitalism, because capitalism, especially in this moment after World War I, when capitalism was seen by millions of people throughout Europe as not only the thing that had disrupted so much of their understanding of the social order, but led to World War I and the deaths of hundreds of millions of people, was a plague and needed to be contested and needed to be contained. And at the time, the main force arguing against that was the left, especially after the Bolshevik Revolution, the communist left. And what fascism offered to the bourgeois and ruling classes of Europe was a way to square the circle, was a way to banish the anxieties created by capitalist dislocation and by the exploitation of capitalism through channeling violence outward in the form of colonial expansion and also by suppressing an internal enemy, which, of course, would reach its apogee with the Nazis and their scapegoating of Jews. So let's turn to Germany. Germany was in far more dire straits than Italy was after World War I. It was the loser. It was the pariah dog of Europe after World War I. It was the force that had been broken at Versailles, had been forced to give up its army, had been forced to give up a massive indemnity to the Allies, had been forced to admit war guilt, had been forced to hand over a demilitarized Ruhr Valley to the French, at the same time that it was suffering from a massive starvation caused by the blockade of the North Sea by the British. And in this moment, 
you saw a momentary, a glimpse of a German socialist revolution. It started with the overthrow of the Kaiser in 1918. The Bolshevik Revolution in Russia had been predicated on a general European revolt. And there was a moment there where it looked like it was going to happen. It was after the Kaiser had been overthrown in 1918 and when a naval mutiny in northern Germany had spread throughout the country and where radical socialists allied with the Spartacist movement and the independent social democrats who had been opposed to the social democratic party that had allied with the war effort and voted war credits, seized control of many cities and and filled the streets of Berlin and demanded first the uh, abdication of the of the Kaiser and then the overthrow of the bourgeois regime in Germany. There was a moment there where it really looked like the tipping point had happened, where the domino effect that was going to start in St. Petersburg and move all the way through Europe and to the United States and across the world was going to happen because Germany really felt like it was the next domino that was going to fall. There were masses of army, mass people, strikers in the streets throughout cities all the way through Germany who were horrified by the war that had been inflicted upon them by the capitalists and wanted to create a new democratic socialist society that would never have that happen again. But that rebellion was put down by the normal Social Democrats, by the Social Democrats who had supported the war effort and a collection of traumatized war veterans who were basically not willing to be demobilized, called the Freikorps or Free Corps, uh, who were at the direct orders of the Social Democrats, sicked on the revolutionaries and massacred them en masse wherever they they popped up their head. The whole years of 1919 and 1920 were a series, essentially a whack-a-mole, where a city would come into rebellion, a spontaneous socialist uh, rebellion against the regime, and then the Freikorps would be sent in to massacre them, the, these, these traumatized World War I veterans who basically only knew violence at that point, and they would massacre them. This is, if anybody is in DSA and they've ever, ever wondered why some random Spartacist on Twitter says, oh, you killed Rosa, this is what they mean. Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, who'd been leaders of the Spartacist Rebellion, were indeed tracked down by these Freikorps and murdered during the suppression of the rebellions. And this was done by the Social Democrats with the idea that revolution was too far a move. It was too, it was too radical. It was too drastic. Instead, we should work within the system. And what they created was the Weimar Republic, which they controlled off and on over the next decade or so until Adolf Hitler and his national socialists, national quote unquote socialists came to power in 1933. This is like the exhibit A for anybody who wants to say that fascism is actually socialism. 
It's that, well, the Nazi stands for National Socialist. Duh. And that's supposed to be the end of the question. That's supposed to be the end of the argument. Boom. Nailed it. It's socialist in the name. You're fucked. But Nazism can only be understood in the same context as Italian fascism, which is as a opportunistic, essentially, basically a postmodern political movement. A political movement that instead of arguing from an ideological position, begins from a position of seeking power. For guys like Mussolini and Hitler, in the horrible traumatic aftermath of World War I, when you had, modernity had run aground and all it had produced was dislocation and horror and trauma, these men saw these broken husks and said, I can gather them together into a force that marries the mobiliz- the street mobilization, the, the popular passion that had before this point only been the province of the left with essentially reactionary economic and social models. That's what fascism was. And it worked brilliantly because it's so much easier to organize people when you have money on your side. That's been the problem for the socialist left and the communist left everywhere, is that who is funding any of this? And the answer is no one, because it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay to overthrow capitalism. So a unscrupulous figure like a Mussolini or a Hitler or the people around either of them who are willing to gesture towards the curtailment of the most rapacious elements of capitalism that de- that inhibit people's lives while also playing to reactionary themes and nationalism above all, because that is the most important part. And that is why anybody who tells you that national socialism means that the Nazis were socialist is full of shit. It's that nationalism in the core countries above all, there's a separate question about nationalism and, and radicalism and socialism in, in imperial countries, in countries that have been colonized. In countries, in colonizing countries, nationalism is antithetical at its base to socialism. And the proof of that is World War I, when all of the socialist parties of Europe which had pledged themselves to internationalism, were members of the Second International, all dissolved their allegiances in order to endorse their specific country's call to war. An absolutely meaningless, idiotic, awful bloodletting that meant nothing to anybody. World War I, one of the stupidest and most brutal and sadistic jokes in human history, these quote-unquote socialist parties were willing to give up their international commitments in order to support it. So that is all you need to know about socialism and nationalism. In the imperial core, they're incompatible. Because what fascism is, above all, is it's capitalism's response to trauma and crisis. That's what happened in Italy. It's what happened in Germany. 
These were countries that were after World War I were in economically distressed situations that did not allow for the creation or maintenance of a social sphere, of a, of a, of a political debate. The failure of capitalism to deliver meaningful livelihoods to the people in Italy and Germany led those people to want to seek alternatives. The number one alternative was Soviet communism, which was being imported from Russia and which made a very clear pitch to the working people of Europe you don't have to live this way. You can have livelihoods that are guaranteed if you overthrow your leaders. Capitalism had no response in traditional political models to this appeal while they were failing to deliver. And that's the chief point is that they were failing to deliver. It was Italy after World War I, was a barely developed economy that was deeply riven by internal contradictions. And the Nazis did not become a meaningful power in Germany until the Great Depression. In the absence of a capitalist response to this leftist critique, the only way of salvation for the ruling classes of these countries was to embrace these cynical street brawlers who had married reactionary social forms to left-wing street organization. And that's what fascism was. Fascism was a way to square the circle, essentially, of popular conservatism in an era when capitalism was failing. We all know what comes after that, of course. The countries that won World War I and were able to weather the Great Depression by establishing a more stable relationship between capital and labor got together with the Soviets and crushed fascism. So that answers the question of what fascism was historically, in my opinion. And I think that what has dogged us in the current moment is the fact that what fascism means after World War II is a much more slippery concept. It's much more difficult. For example, there is a left-wing argument that says that the military Keynesianism of the United States post-World War II to the present is essentially fascist. When you look at its violent repression abroad, with its suppression of domestic rebellions and, and re domestic uh, minority populations, I think that's, that's a valid argument, honestly. But I feel like if you grant that argument, you're basically saying that Denise D'Souza, General Goldberg are right, and that the liberal state is fascist. The attempt to deal with the post- Great Depression capitalist order is by its nature fascist. And I think, as I said, I think there's something to that, but I also think that to say that is to basically define the term out of meaningfulness. 
Because if everything is fascism, if everything post-World War II, if the post-World War II order is fascist, then what does fascism mean? I feel like making fascism meaningful means identifying what we're talking about. And to me, what we're talking about is not so much a question of behavior, because as I said, the pre-fascist Second Reich of Germany was doing concentration camps and genocide in Namibia 30 years before they were doing the Nazis did anything. So that is not a meaningful concept. The meaningful concept to me is when does it turn inward? When do the internal contradictions of a capitalist advanced economy become unsustainable and require this attempt to synthesize popular discontent with ruling class control. That is when fascism exists. Because the empire, the empire of the countries of pre-World War I Europe and the empire of the United States is willing to countenance astounding violence and horror outside of its metropole, in the areas that it considers to be the frontier. I mean, our Keynesian welfare state in America carried out a massacre of somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five million people in Southeast Asia in the 1960s and 70s, and has killed maybe a million people in the Middle East since 9-11. That is the nature of an imperial power. Fascism is the political movement that arises to combat the internal contradictions that occur when the metropole, when the imperial core is no longer sustainable. And I feel like with Trump in the United States and also Orban in Europe, in Poland, UKIP, uh, Front National, we are seeing the reemergence of that same phenomenon of imperial core countries in Europe and the United States finding within themselves a irresolvable conflict created by the economic collapse of 2008 and 2009 and the resulting austerity. This is a world where those benefits, those of, of empire, that social democratic deal that had been given to workers, regular people in America and in Europe is no longer tenable. The spoils of empire are no longer great enough. The frontiers of capitalism are restrained enough that there is no more, there's no, there's nowhere else to gain new profit. Because for the longest time, the biggest knock on Marx from conventional economists was that his prediction that the rate of profit would decline was wrong. But in reality, that profit over time was found through colonial exploitation. And what we were seeing in the 21st century is the first reality of a global market 
There really is nowhere else on the planet that is not a part of the global capitalist market. So there is no more uh, frontier to find new, new sources of exploitation, new sources of margin, of profit. We are in a, a closed loop. And now that we're in it, the rate of profit is declining. It has been since the 70s. And the only thing that's kept the capitalist economies of the West going has been these series of bubbles. Stock speculation in the 80s, tech speculation in the late 90s, and of course, real estate speculation in the late aughts. And now we are in the backwash of one of these collapses. And the rate of profit isn't going anywhere. All that's happening is, is that the capitalist powers of Europe and America, the West in general, are beginning to turn inward and have, have been for decades, actually. So since the 1970s, and only exacerbated by every economic downturn and super exacerbated by the 2008 collapse, the economies of the capitalist West in Europe and the United States have not only sought profit by hyper-exploiting the labor of workers in China and Bangladesh, Vietnam, every, and everywhere else, but also by eroding the standard of living of workers within the metropole, within the United States, within continental Europe. And by doing so, they have created the exact same set of reinforcing dislocations and pathologies that persisted in post-World War I Europe. And people are looking for answers. People in the fent holler shithells of middle America and in the deindustrialized regions of Europe are turning once again to the exact same sort of populist appeals, right populist appeals that made up fascism in the 1920s and 30s. Trump in America, Le Pen, Orban, that fucking Doogie Hauser bitch in Austria, all of those motherfuckers blaming problems on interior parasites. Because that's the main trick of fucking fascism that is true of the original fascism of the 20s and 30s and is true of this fascism. It is that the real infection is capitalism and the scapegoat is always something else. It is always taking the real injuries committed to people, the real pain that people feel, and blaming it on an interior other, Jews in Germany, immigrants in, in our United States, Muslims in the creeping fascism of Europe. That is how the circle is squared. That is how popular enthusiasm, popular rage, righteous rage, I would argue, at an economic order that is exploitative and unjust is married to reactionary social forms, is by blaming a scapegoat. 
pushing the blame away from the capitalist system that is actually responsible for all of these awfulness, all of this exploitation, all of this misery. And so that is what fascism is. Fascism is the attempt by cynical opportunists and, in the case of Donald Trump, genuinely idiotic reality TV show morons, abetted by cynical opportunists, to redirect popular discontent with an economic system that has exploited them towards scapegoats in the service of traditional centers of power. And the goal of leftist movements in this country and in every country is to disengage that mechanism. It's to break that feedback loop. It's to reintroduce class into the discussion. It is to demystify a rhetoric and a conversation, a social conversation that is totally forgotten what class means and what class impacts. The real upshot of all of this is that our only salvation comes through internationalism because nationalism proscribing humanity by borders arbitrarily drawn will inevitably lead to fascism. There is no such thing as nationalist socialism in the 21st century in a global market. At one time there might have been, but now national social, nationalist socialism is national socialism, is Nazism, is fascism. The only way that we're getting out of this predicament we're in right now is through international cooperation. It's by together dismantling the empire of European powers of the United States, of redistributing wealth, of redistributing power to a global proletariat. That is the only way to counteract the narrow violence of imperial-inflected national fascism. Because if we are okay as a nation with plundering foreign countries, overturning democratically elected governments, massacring foreigners, drone-striking people in order to maintain our, our neurotic sense of safety, then we will inevitably be okay with those same weapons being turned on us to maintain that same sense of arbitrary safety. Until we believe that every human being on earth is equal in dignity to every other human being on earth, we will be divided along these lines. We will be cosseted by bromides about national greatness and by national security and, and what we're owed and sign off on devastation and bloodshed that will inevitably come home to us as the rate of profit continues to decline and as capital continues to seek any means of maintaining its hegemony.